Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Grayson Gilbert. And I'm Matt Henry. Ah, oh, you failed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> couldn't even hear it. Oh, you couldn't? Hang Ding. on. Let, let's just see if we can find... Oh, I had my sound way down. Oh, that'll do it. All right. Everybody ready? Well, this is not working well. Plays it like 10 times and then you can't do it on the day it matters. Okay, and now it plays <laughs> and you're talking. Hush. Hot pockets. Lena's going to enjoy editing this way. <laughs> She's not editing anything. <laughs> she just, that's all on there. Let's it go. Yep. All right. Well, tonight or today, whatever it's called, we are doing another hot topic. And the reason we're going to do this is we're going to touch on the parachurch again because we've got some feedback, some of it a little negative, um, which is okay. Uh, we don't really care. Um, <laughs> Was it we, negative or controversial? Well, it created a controversy, which oh. created some negativity. Okay. And that's okay. Uh I, I actually can be even be sympathetic toward it, but we wanted uh, to expand on it. And, and so there is no outline to this uh, in any real sense. We just have some points jotted down. Uh, so there will always be that wandering, right? But the subject on parachurch is huge once you start looking into it. So the more you scratch at it, the more uh, things come up. But one of the things that we talked about um, and I just want to talk to you guys about is how the parachurch ministries can inadvertently encourage a laziness in the local church, not the people of the church, but the church as um, as a whole. I would also even argue in a it can happen in a parachurch organization. But have you ever seen the effects if? Have you ever seen that work itself out? Maybe you haven't. I've, I've been doing this a lot longer, and the parachurch organizations really hit big in the 60s and 70s um, with the radio ministries and stuff. In fact, you guys know Southern California was kind of like the hotspot for all those. No, I didn't. Yeah, focus on the family and those kinds of things. They were all Southern California, and then they all moved out to Colorado Springs, and that became the new— uh, place. And so if you go out to Colorado Springs to this day, you'll be driving across the freeway and you'll just see parachurch organization after parachurch, big, big buildings. And, and you're like, huh. And I mean, it literally is a Mecca hmm. for them. I think it had something to do with just the economics of it. And um, they did that. But what do you think I mean by the church being lazy? I don't know. Why don't you tell us? Fine. If I had to take a stab at it, I'd guess that <laughs> we farm it out to everybody else rather than exactly. doing it in-house. Yeah. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the things that people don't think about is 
in a parachurch, they're doing something, and generally they're doing it because they don't think the church is doing it. And and then if they do that well, it's easier for the pastor to say, why don't you go check out X ministry? Uh, they, they really got some good stuff on that. And everyone just, the, the church no longer, the, the staff no longer has to work. Here, here's my point. Um, Matt, your day started yesterday at what time for actual work? Eight, uh, eight 8.30. Oh, okay. Um, not horribly early, right? Mm-hmm. And it ended, though, when? I got home around 10. Right, at night, not morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, and mine started at about the same and ended close to 9. Um, that's a busy day. That that qualifies for a long day. Um, and tonight, I my day started at, again, about 8.30, and it's going to end about, what time does the Bible stay in? Depends, probably about 9. Okay, so about 9 again. So it'll be another day like that. And when, when you start using the parachurch organization, a lot of times a churches can give the appearance of being really busy because nobody really knows what a pastor does, right? Um, I mean, I walk into your office, Grayson, all the time, and you're reading or or whatever it is, and people and people can look at that and say, oh, he's not really working. Well, most people have no idea what you do. Does that make sense? Yep. And if you, if you weren't, if you didn't have duties and responsibilities, it could really give the appearance that you're working hard, but in fact, what, what you're mostly doing is drinking coffee, which he's not doing, by the way. Um, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but most of the time in churches, the people don't know what their pastor is doing, including the leaders, um, like elders or, or whatever, and, and they don't know exactly what kind of work the employee is doing. And it's, it's a real problem. And so you, you start pouring money into these ministries, and they're talking about how they want to do more and more. But in fact, what you're really doing is just creating a bigger bureaucracy. I can't say that word. Bureaucracy? Yeah. Can you say that? Bureaucracy? Yeah, it's got too much R in it for my mouth. Anyhow. Um, add to that, when you were, well, you were over the, uh, the you were doing that uh crisis pregnancy thing, mm-hmm. how much did the board actually interact in, in any detail as to what's going on, sense of accountability, knowledge of what was going? Uh, I could not even tell you, honestly. Do you think they were in it, involved? I, I don't. I think, I think they had board meetings. and. Well, the board meetings was how often? Once a month or less? Uh, it would depend on the season, but... Yeah, they they most of the time they were not doing monthlies. And who's who's feeding them the information on the board for the agenda? Uh, well, based on the structure, it's going to be the executive director, right? Yeah. And so before you had an executive director, that was you, though, right? Yeah, because there wasn't one, right? So you were like the interim or whatever. Yeah, but there was never a board meeting. So you literally didn't have a board meeting the whole time that you were. Yeah, and how long I think, was that? I think they have to meet twice a year by decorum. Okay, and uh, but there, yeah, there were no board meetings happening. So I, I was the one proactively sending off emails and uh, 
and I'd have to typically bug people for responses and see financials were almost never done on time. And so how would decisions get I made? actually remember that because yeah. that you you were talking to me about that, how frustrating it was that you, the treasurer um, was a treasurer in name only. He would never produce his financials. He never get them there on time. And and so you're kind of left with guessing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And 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 so it when you have a board that's absent, how much more are they absent in actually knowing what the leadership is? So you could have been sitting there playing cards. Mm -hmm. um, I know you weren't. Yeah. No one had really any idea what I was doing. And and at your church, just to make my point, at your church, how many people at your church actually know what you do? Uh, very few. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I And, and I— I'm not saying that everyone now needs to go bother their pastor with a yeah, hour leave, by leave hour. Yeah, leave me alone. Yeah, <laughs> most pastors are they don't have the time. But what happened? What I'm trying to make the point of is within both the parish church and the local church, these things can actually free the pastor up to the point that he becomes wasting time rather than being more faithful. It's very easy to have extensive meetings over lunch. But nothing is really accomplished. I remember even back at my old church where I, I, I wasn't the pastor, we had some meetings that would begin in the morning time and end in the evening, and we never left the room. But if you were to look at exactly what got accomplished over nine, ten hours of talking, nothing. But we had a lot of good food, and we talked a lot. Um, my, my only point in that is that parachurch organizations oftentimes try to fill a hole, but in filling the hole, they actually help promote a laziness on behalf of the church. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. that's fair. Oh, yeah, okay. This is going to be a really fun uh, one, I can tell. All right, how about this? I, I jotted this one down. The selling point in many of these ministries is that they can do things better than the individual church. What do you guys think of that? Uh, I guess it would depend on what we're talking about. All right, so you know, give me an example. Um, and it, I think it would also depend on the size of your church. You know, so we have a relatively smaller church. It's going to be harder for us to staff something out. Well, I, you know? I'm going to. In fact, that, that's the one I. That's a good point. I didn't think of that in my note. Um, let's talk about the smaller church. So the big mega church, I mean, they have, I mean, at Grace Community Church, we had a printing press. We had multiple printing presses and a whole graphics and communication department, you know, with multi-staff right there. So you can do a lot of neat stuff with that. Um, and so you don't have to look outside. Uh, but but the way the parachurch organization generally works is that they're looking at the medium to small type church and they're showing, hey, this is something that we can do better than you. So why don't you partner with us and and we'll take that from off your plate so you can then be about the other things, which was my first point is in the effort to relieve the church of duties, oftentimes they actually end up inadvertently producing promoting laziness rather than we now can be more productive because we're not burdened. But yeah. so with that in mind, as a smaller church, you think about that. What what would you look for instinctively for like in a parachurch for help? 
Some uh, missions would be one. Like the SBC. Yeah. Uh, church planning. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of resources you can tap into there. Um, what kind of resources, though? Because we plant that church. You, you are a church planted. Um, what were the helpful resources versus just some money? Besides just money? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, th- there's other people in the SBC who have planted churches. So, like, when we were doing it, we were able to talk with some people and say, hey, what was helpful, what was unhelpful, uh, what'd you learn, what were things to avoid, because it's not something that we had ever done before. So, we had some help there. The challenge, of course, is there's some theological and philosophical differences that you have to filter through, but um, it's helpful to, okay, here's people who have done it, and okay, they can come alongside you. So what about curriculum development? What about discipleship? What about Sunday school material? What about women's ministry? Yeah. Well, I mean, like for our ch- Sunday school, we use desiring God, children's desiring God. Uh, I didn't write that. Right, you know, so that, that that's a helpful resource there. Um, the, the one of the things that I think smaller churches might do, well, larger churches do it too, frankly. And this comes down to again your theology, but you're exporting your counseling to yes. the yeah quote professionals or or whatever, because um, we don't have the resources to counsel all these people. We don't have the the skill or the depth to, or accolades to do it, and so they outsource those kinds of things. So what do you think? I would agree with that. I mean, most of the time that I see, at least people comment on it, um, that's kind of the number one thing I see is counseling being pushed off to kind of these parachurch organizations. And I think a lot of it depends on how they view um, really the power of the scriptures in the middle of all that, right? So if they have an integrationist approach, right, they're more psychologically based in their counseling, they're going to naturally look towards the outside world and say, we can't meet those needs. But if they're neuthetic or biblical counseling, then a lot of those people are going to be more apt, I think, to to dive actually head on into it. Um, but even with a lot of those churches, I see a lot of the time that they'll they'll farm it out because they don't have the, the time for it or they're busy with something else. And I think, I mean, even in our current day where building the brand of the church tends to take a huge focus with a lot of people, hmm. they'll push off counseling so that they can focus on on that, which is what they call, quote-unquote, the the true work of the pastor, where they're more so seen as a CEO than a shepherd. Sure. I, I, think, I think you're right there. The counseling one is a bugaboo for me, but um, I, like I know of a, a, a few churches in my town that their, their philosophy is they will do no counseling. There's one church where... Um, Flat out, he'll, if you were to go up and say, hey, I, I, I need counseling, and me and my wife, and we'd like to meet with you, he just flat out tells you, I don't do counseling. Um, I can give you some uh, counselors who have, have their own uh, work outside of the church, and you can go to one of them, but I don't do that. Um, my question in my mind, as just as a pastor, is at what point do you give up your shepherding um, of your flock. Some people will say, well, we'll do basic stuff, but if it gets complex, um, then w- we just can't do that, or we don't want to do it, or we're not qualified to do it. So again, we farm it out. Uh, and again, in my mind, I'm thinking on, a, on, a, on paper, that sounds great. 
you know, it's like these are complex issues. We don't know what to do with them. I would argue theologically they're not as complex as we oftentimes make it. It does come, Grayson, to what you were saying. You know, how psychologized are you? It, um, and this gets into something we still have to do some podcasts on is the value and the wisdom of developing a psychological worldview uh, for church ministry. But um, I, I see that as as a damaging effect of the church. The pastor's like, I don't have time for that, or I don't feel qualified to do that. It's like, okay, one, if you don't have time to counsel your own people, then something else is, would you agree, Matt, that something's broken there? If if you literally are looking at a person and say, I, I don't do counseling, or I don't have time. Yeah, I'm not certain how you're shepherding them. Yeah, again, it, it won't fit neatly into a nice schedule. It's going to be awkward. You're going to have to meet earlier. You're going to have to meet later. Um, in fact, that's what happened to you, I think you told me, is that you, you did a theology book study, mm-hmm. and then you were all done, but then one of your members just kind of impromptu said, hey, can I talk to you? And when it was a good, you said it was a very fruitful time, but. Yeah, um, very much so. But it meant you but didn't that, get. But that kind of stuff happens, and it's okay. Um, I'm not, there's no gripe in that. No, but, I understand. But Yeah. yeah. Uh, and but think about what that would look. What what are you communicating to him if you, he said, "Hey, I need to meet with you, or I I I, I need to talk to you." Like, I don't do that. Um, you need to call one of these two places, and you know they'll take care of you. Um, you've immediately cut yourself out. I I am maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but like we use the desiring children, desiring God material too, because it's. It, it's been good. I have thought about trying to write our own curriculum at some point, but I I, I see parachurch when they're providing tr- uh, materials, like teaching materials, uh, that that can be very helpful, um, but you, usually only at a lower level, younger level. Uh, like I, I trust children desiring God. We, we, we extensively looked at them theologically, make certain that it wasn't, they, they were not writing curriculum for the broad market, right? So it wasn't a bunch of painting, you know, sheep or something and calling that Sunday school. They were actually trying to do something that was very God-centered. Um, but how much material do you look outside, how much, uh, how many ministries do you look outside of your children's ministry for supplying you your teaching material? Uh, almost none, unless it is like a you know a theology study where we're going through a book. But but uh, that's that's a ministry. That's a guy wrote a book, and you're like, this is a good book. Who's going to take them through the book? Yeah, though? you're still working through it yourself, right? Uh, we we use the fundamentals of the faith, which is uh, something that Grace Community Church produces. But we're teaching it. We're not plugging in a video and walking out to go get ourselves a cup of coffee. We'll be back. I don't know, well over 200. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I I hear more and more of the people, and they they say, we can do more for you because, we, because we're bigger. Um, and I wonder if the fact that they can do bigger, the volume is necessarily always better. Um, I have found time and time, like I never buy anything from Lifeway Christian Resources, even though it's the the publishing arm of the SBC. I mean, any anything that can sell Jesus Calling, 
Right. Uh, I have nothing to do with it. I won't, I, even if they have a good one, I won't do it because it's like, I'm not, I'm not in any way giving you any indication that you guys are caring for the souls of the people. This is purely a business. So they, they got phenomenal amount of reach and ability to do stuff, but I'm not sure I want it. I'd rather, I, I think, I think it's better for the local church to to focus on what is unique to their church and the needs of their church and where their church is at rather than constantly looking outward, adult Sunday school material, discipleship material, things like that. At the same time, we recommend Matthias Media, mm-hmm. but we recommend them not to get them out of our church to go to Matthias Media for their discipleship, but that that is material they can use as they get into a discipling relationship. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was going to just add to that, um, I found when you do that, like even if you try to look out to some of these bigger publishers or resource hubs, if you will, is, you know, early on I would go to them for a lot of things, but I found myself changing so much of what they had written to fit what I thought was better. Right. And so there was a point where I'm like, why am I even bothering? I, I have the wherewithal to just do this on my own. I had the tools from seminary and everything else. So it's like, what's the point at the end of the day? If I'm going to take it and and revamp it to make it fit our context, why not just do that from the Bible? Yeah. Um, I actually had the same thing. I used uh, this counseling material to help the people learn how to counsel each other. And Unfortunately, I hadn't done my due diligence. I had heard somebody recommend it, so I got it. And then as I'm teaching it, I'm having to undo all kinds of things there that I'm like, I don't agree with this. And and it, that was the one and only time I ever taught that. Uh, it, it ended up in the garbage. It was like, this is actually not useful stuff. Um, my only point in, in discussing that is Oftentimes, it, it's very tempting when you're a pastor and you're very busy and, and, and you're looking for some relief that you look outside. Um, and, and, and that's one thing if you're looking outside for some material help because you, you don't have time to write things. Um, but it's a whole different thing when you are um, – but you're still teaching. And I, I, again, I'm not sure if I'm making my point clear, but – the, the, the leadership, you should be developing your leaders and other people so that they are teaching it. So it's still coming from the local church rather than you're, you're sending the people out of your church into these other entities. Well, I'm, to me, that just speaks of a basic non-negotiable for pastoral qualification, right? You should be able to handle the word of truth accurately. <laughs> well, there's that. That's a good point. Yes. Um, now, I, I was thinking, I actually jotted down this as a reminder was— um, there's a guy, you and I know him, um, and he's actually a rather popular uh, podcaster too. And we went to visit him down in Illinois. And one day I was just me with him, and I just asked him, so what are you doing in, in, in the way of discipleship for your members? You know, How are you developing them? And he bluntly said, I don't do that. He's like, that is not what I do. I, I am a leader training leaders. And he said it. In a, a, he had a little phrase, but it was so clear that it was uh, something it was that developed. got repeated yeah. all the time. And he's like, I am not in the job of teaching the people. My job is to develop leaders who are going to go plant. And so he he literally said, I don't have time for counseling, and I have time for training the average member. I am only focused on finding and training up a leader. 
And I walked away. I actually grieved for his church at that point because it's like, so mm-hmm. how, in what way are you shepherding them? I, I, I wasn't sure, sure I could answer that. <laughs> Bad, I'd like you to talk a little bit more um, on the idea of mission creep about and how mission creep works in a ministry um, in relationship to the core mission and how that gets lost in the shuffle, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think it's something that happens very naturally, and no one's even intending for it to happen. But it's just as as time goes on and uh, needs develop and certain experiences in the ministry happen, uh, people start talking and saying, well, this person said this. I think it might be helpful if we started doing this. And that's not a bad thing. It just, you do that long enough, you know, five, 10 years down the road, you could have a completely different mission or ministry functionally. Yeah, see, that, that's exactly what I was thinking too. It's, it's not that they're bad. It's just, it's not what you set out to do, and, but somehow you got there. And, and not only did you get there, but now you, have to, you feel like you have to sustain it. Yeah, and it's like now I it's so you were with the crisis pregnancy clinic. So what what do you think a crisis pregnancy center or um, it what should its primary? Well, it could be anything, but what was your understanding of what that crisis pregnancy center was designed to do? What was its core mission? Uh, to provide alternatives to those who are considering an abortion. Okay. Uh, and I mean, anyone who was in CareNet was for that. You know, I mean, no one, I mean, at least in my time, <laughs> would want to debate that. That's why they're there. And that's why they originally come on staff or volunteer, whatever it is that they do. Um, but, but just given our location, I mean, if you were to pull the statistics of how many abortions we had in even southeastern Wisconsin, um, maybe Milwaukee being obviously the outlier, but it's not actually that many, relatively speaking, to the rest of the nation. I actually, I forgot about that. You shocked me when you told me that, that it wasn't like Kenosha was aborting babies right and left. No, if you were to pull the statistics from Racine in Kenosha counties, um, you might be shocked as to how few there are. Now, of course, we'll all be the first to say, well, one is too many. It's like, well, yes. I mean, no one's debating that. Um, The amount of resources and money and funding that go into not actually reaching that one person, though, is incredible and because it's very difficult it's a very difficult thing to do and in order to do it and do it well you need an enormous amount of money and being a smaller center it's just not going to happen so at that point what were some ways that maybe the mission creep came in where you then began to expand yeah well, because you weren't, yeah. it's not like you were saving babies right and left. Right. Well, because it was more in the inner city, um, you, you tend to have a certain clientele because it's all, a lot of it's word of mouth and they, they come and it's the place where you can get free diapers and formula and clothing and uh, a lot of good stuff. Um, and again, personally, I didn't actually have a problem with that because it gave you an opportunity to reach and interact with certain people that you otherwise might not. And they need the gospel. And so I'm like, well, you know what? If free diapers are a means through which I can bring the gospel to somebody, I'll take it. And even at, at the church level, it's like, as a church, I'll support that. Um, 
but when when you're being staffed by Catholics or, I mean, I don't know how many volunteers uh, when I would interview them. My opening line was, "Can you tell me the gospel?" And they couldn't. And I was literally told, "It doesn't matter. We want more volunteers so we can be open more hours and get them on anyway." So, okay, why were you wanting? Why be open more hours if if you're not saving babies? And that was the core. What, what, why be open longer hours? I think maybe there was a thought that if, if you're open more hours, you, you have a bigger window to catch people. Okay, but not for the gospel. Not primarily, yeah. I mean, you could do that, yeah. right? I, I, know, I know one of my daughters uh, volunteered, and she had the opportunity to do Bible studies with some of the girls, and, and, and she was just so blessed by that. But I also know that things started changing, and it's like that's not what we're here for. And that's— that's the idea that I'm, I, I just want us to have people hopefully understand a little bit better. It's not that any of the things are bad, um, but somewhere in the process, you know, they need more money and more money and more money. And the givers are given, are they, they oftentimes walk away with this idea that, well, if we're open longer and we're doing this, we're saving more babies, when in fact, no baby was saved. Yeah. Or even attempted to be saved. Um, in fact, what it just means is more formula went out and more diapers went out. Um, would you say then that even in a crisis pregnancy, is it really to save a child or is it an opportunity in that crisis to bring gospel? Well, that would be my position. I mean, that, or that would be my goal. But I'm not certain that was happening. Like, like the touchdown was save the baby. And as a Christian work, that in my mind, that cannot be the touchdown. But it became that. See, okay, so, but, but also babies weren't being saved. Not because you were being lazy or unfaithful. It's just, it's just. It's given not, our area, given. You're not yeah. having people coming in. I'm thinking about abortion. I don't know what to do. And then you come alongside her and say, look, we have alternatives. We can help you, blah, blah, blah. That's just not happening. So then, in in reality, that's still what is the selling point. But what we're what we're also our new metric is how many how much clothes are we giving out how many ultrasounds are we giving how many uh, how much formula we're giving out because you have to measure things one way or the other but somewhere in there it has very little to do with the actual saving of a a life right yeah and and then unfortunately it also had very little to do with opportunities to bring gospel into a very dark situation yep. Yeah, that, that that's my problem. Um, what happens in parachurches that people don't maybe understand is the longer they're around, um, it just becomes this temptation to expand stuff. Yeah. Um, you, you you do the course in the chaos block. Yeah. Have you guys been able? And I'm not trying. This is not gotcha. Okay. Have you guys <laughs> been able to stay focused on on exactly what your goal is, or have you found yourself? just because of listener feedback and re comments expanding, and again, not even for bad, just expanding what you do in your blog. I mean, there's been a couple points where we've expanded, but I think they were in line with our original intent. Um, I mean, you know me, I'm pretty stubborn with a lot of stuff. Yes. So I take most <laughs> people on the internet, especially I take their feedback with a real small grain of yeah, salt. Yeah, you're not afraid to 
block and ban, right? No, I'm not. Actually, it's I, I considered at one point doing kind of a year of Jubilee and releasing the prisoners, but I was <laughs> I second guessed that one pretty quick. <laughs> oh, that but, would be ugly. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it would just, I'm like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> But I mean, one guy, we, I remember distinctly, he's like, you know, you guys post a lot of quotes from people and they're great quotes, but I, you don't post a ton of scripture. And I'm like, that's fair. I, we can certainly post more of God's word. I, like, wh- what beef would I have with that? Um, but we've had all sorts of different suggestions from people over the years where it's like, you need to do this and you need to do that. And I mean, my basic line has always been, look, from day one, this is what we've set out to do, and this is what we're doing, and by God's grace, we'll continue that. But neither one of us have a desire to make this into some monolithic thing. Like, yeah. we, we just don't care. Um, if Facebook implodes one day and it all goes away, I'd probably be happier for it in the long run. <laughs> Actually, I would too. Yeah, one of the things I'm thinking about, because I've been on the ground floor of a couple of parachurch organizations where they had a very, very specific goal. Like one was training pastors overseas. Matt, you've been with me on those. Um, In poor countries where there's no way these men can come and receive a theological education. So the idea was we'll go to them and we'll provide that. Um, And it was a great idea. I think it was a phenomenal idea and it was it's it's born fruit. Um, But what happens, and again, I'm not even saying this is bad, but people need to understand this is how that mission creep works is you start out by going to and reaching pastors. That then starts to say, well, we'll we'll start schools. Well, now we have to send even bigger teams of volunteers to do even more training, which then it says, well, we need a curriculum development. So now you develop a whole curriculum development arm. Then you need, uh, at some point, the cost of production gets big. So now, hey, we need to have a printing uh, set. And so now you start printing the curriculum. And then you have to come up with new ways to distribute the the material, um, which then expands into a whole department of donor development which then expands into selling the ministry on various campuses because you need to keep feeding the beast because you're in this constant need of volunteers who will pay to go overseas to teach the curriculum. And somewhere in the, in the process, it's not so clear how many pastors are actually being trained. I, I, my, my rant I had was in Tanzania. That was the one where it came to an end where I was teaching a course – to pastors who had already been through my course with another teacher, they failed it. And so I came to teach and they failed the test again, but they all received certificates of completion. And I, and I walked away and it's like, now on paper, we'll say we sent pastors over and they trained these men and we'll have pictures of them holding up their certificates of completion. And to the average donor, they look at that and they're like, oh, that's awesome. Praise God gospels going out in Tanzania. and But if they were to actually ask me, the teacher, I would have said it was an abject failure. Not one of them came close to mastery of the most basic theological ideas I'm teaching. You, you've seen that in Ethiopia, I think. Would you agree? Yeah. Where you're not sure after three modules of our own material, um, how many of those pastors are actually Getting it. Getting it. Yeah. 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 It's 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 hard. 
Uh, but we, since we do it in-house, we, we're not asking for – we're not selling anything. So we don't have to be clever in our, in our marketing because it, it's, it's done by our church and we, we get sent out that way. Um, and then we can try to find the ones who are faithful and pour more energy into them and slowly begin to turn the, the ship. But when you once you turn it into just its own ministry, it it begins something where again I'm just arguing you feed uh, the beast, which moves me to my next thing. In the, the one common denominator I find denominator I find in most parachurch organizations is that they're always needing money. Now, what can that lead to? Compromise. Why? Well, because you have to keep the donors happy, right? So essentially, it's the same thing that we see with. Uh, government funding in all sorts of different schools and, and whatnot is, you know, if you are getting the money, you have to then abide by Title IX and whatever else they want to put down the pipeline. Well, that's right. You worked at a public school I system. Did. yep. So, I mean, I saw a lot of that firsthand there where you, now you have to jump through all sorts of different hoops to then show data that supports you are now in line with their regulations and their requirements. Um it's not necessarily so much red tape on a governmental level within the local churches or parachurches, if you will, on that, but they're still doing in much uh, the same thing, right? So if somebody who's a big donor, let's say they're giving, you know, half a million dollars a year, that person's naturally going to carry more sway in the t decisions that are made. And you want to keep that person happy because let's say all that goes away. Well, then there goes your, everything you just talked about. There goes away your curriculum department, there goes away your ways of um, being able to meet those metrics that you've determined are now necessary to keep that ministry going. Now, that's interesting you said that because that just made me think of something. I have to be really careful how I say this because I have a lot of ignorance in this. But I know back in the day, there was a very, very wealthy man who loved John MacArthur's teaching, and he came out and basically said, I will fund a more centralized organization, not just the church, but John had just started at the mas with the Master's College and then the Master's Seminary. There used to be a thing called the Master's Mission. It was all the Masters. And, um, and this guy was funding a lot of that, if my memory serves me correct. And it started off doing good, but then he started putting expectations and pressures on it. Now, here's the difference. Um, they wouldn't. They wouldn't allow that, and so they finally just severed ties with them. But it really took a hit because there were they had a lot of people on staff and payroll that now all of a sudden they had to eliminate and find alternative sources because they weren't willing to compromise on that. But boy, it's hard when you got some guy putting in three million, five million a year of his own money. Um, you want to keep him happy? Yeah, but, that's a crazy amount of money. You know. Here, here's what my recommendation to people when, when they're thinking about some organization wanting to start uh, supporting them is if you're going to do that, just ask questions before you start sending the money in. Um, what, what, what percentage of their budget is actually on ministries that are focused on the core ministry versus administration? Something happens, right, when – it, the bigger it gets, the more you have to take care of the bureaucracy. I can't say that word. Bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the word of the day, folks. You um, just point every time you want me to say it. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Anyhow, uh, how transparent are the ministries uh, when it comes to sharing 
that financial information? Do you know where your money actually is going? What are the kinds of safeguards that are in place for those finances? Um, who has signing authority in your church, Matt? Um, the checks. My elders, my, yeah. the other elders. I don't do it. Yeah. Uh, I willfully, I refuse to be a signer because, but, um, but neither one of them can print checks. Okay. Who does that? Um, my secretary. So you have a secretary who has access to the checks and then you have them um, doing the signing. Um yes. And that's the same thing. I don't even know where our checks are. I don't know the... I couldn't tell you. Either. Yeah, I don't know what the, uh, what do you call it, the on the safe. The combination. combination. I don't know what the combination is. I don't have, I refuse to have access to our bank accounts Yep. or any of that. Yeah, and, and I do too. And, and that's something that people ought to ask about organizations. A lot of times in the bigger ones, they've got pretty good safeguards one way or the other, but it's, it's not unusual for you to have some of them where it's built around a strong personality. That guy has access to the checking account. He can have checks cut. He has signing ability. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you. Yeah, I I have been purposeful in that because early on I had accusations leveled at me that I was about the money, which was a joke because I was paid very little. Um, but um, here is a situation we had at uh, my old church. Uh, that I thought was very interesting was we we had a new administrator come on and he, he was such a great guy, very godly man and very knowledgeable about how nonprofits should work and uh, an expert on in those areas. Oh, he he drove the the leadership crazy early on because we were actually late in our payments. We were as late as 180 days behind on bills and. Um, He's, it, so he actually would provide a, a financial update to the elder board, and with it, he had all of these scriptures quoted about um, how God views a person unfaithful with their finances, <laughs> and, he, and he would read them out loud and stuff like that to the elders, and they're all just sitting there having to take it as he then talks about why we have to institute these policies and, and tighten up. But one of the things that he uh, told me was that they had— um, he called them slush funds, and I'm like, I don't know what that is. He's like, he found out that all of the different departments had their petty cash, and their pet. What do you think of what? How much do you think a petty cash should be in? A, like a, if I, do you even have petty cash? We don't. Okay, so zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, we don't have a petty cash. Uh, there were some departments in our that that church that had tens of thousands of dollars in petty cash. And he's like, no, <laughs> no, that all goes into the general fund and we pay our bills. Uh, but it was a great little way of kind of, hey, we'll just take care of this. And everyone was kind of sending money however they wanted. And that the, the men over that department would handle that money in that way. He's like, there is no oversight. There's no accountability. There's no knowledge. We have no knowledge of, of how much you have or where it's going. And so effective that day, basically, all of that money is to be transferred, and we're going to put it into our account where we can actually know what's going on. It really, really opened up my eyes. 
And I'll guarantee you that not one of those slush funds was with ill intent. Nobody thought, well, this is a bad thing. It was just, it just evolved. And again, when you're looking at an organization, you want to see, do they run a tight ship when it comes to their finances? Because it has a, um, a huge, huge temptation. Um, also, have you seen any, any example of back scratching where one nonprofit funnels money to another nonprofit who in turn will funnel prop money back to that nonprofit? Mm-hmm. And can you explain how you've seen it? Obviously not naming <laughs> names, but. Uh, I have seen it and I don't like it. Why? It seems shifty to me. I mean, so you're, you're receiving money as from your donors, but they're giving you that money for your ministry, but then your ministry turns around and gives that to another ministry that your donors weren't giving the money for. And it's just, I, th- I think it's very dishonest. In fact, if it's the one I'm thinking of that we talked about uh, back in the day, it was a ministry you would have nothing to do with, right? Right. And yet now all of a sudden, in a roundabout way, your donors are supporting a ministry that likely they would not have. And again, how many people know that that happens? It happens actually rather frequently. Um, It can really be profitable. I I know of a guy who used to be over a nonprofit. Now he's got his own company. And what he does is he offers his services as a consultant on how to improve your donor base. And for a price anywhere from around five grand up to, to around 15 grand, he'll come in and consult with you so you can increase your, your donations and your donor base. And, and I wonder how many people realize that. I'm giving money so that they can hire someone who will in turn help them learn how to get more money. Yeah, so it's they're asking you to donate money, but it's not for the ministry. It's it's donate money so we can make get a consultant. More, yeah. Yeah, more money. Um in fact, I was I was part this is not technically a parachurch, but it sort of was. I got invited to be part of a cohort of lead pastors. And and the whole idea was to discuss various aspects of how to lead churches in planting, but it was also for the health of the lead pastor because they were noticing pastors got burned out. So it was just a, a chance to share wisdom and encourage each other, um, and that's how it was sold. We the cost was twenty five hundred dollars per pastor to buy into that, and we had generally ten to thirteen men on it, so twenty five grand. And what you did was you did a Zoom call with everybody once a month, and you talked for an hour. Um, and the guy just kind of let it. I can tell you absolutely nothing of value. I thought it would be useful because we were just beginning to think about I remember planting. that, yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, I walked away with no greater wisdom. I did walk away with my eyes opened up to how the world of church planting can be rather shifty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're all paying into it. But then I found out that a couple of the guys in the cohort also had their consulting business doing the exact same thing. And so at the end of the cohort, after 10 weeks of doing this or so, the guy strongly encouraged you, look, if you really want to take this to the next level, I recommend you go to 
one of the guy, and he can also help you. And so now, parachurch parasites. I was going to yep. say a pyramid scheme. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it was crazy, and all of it is claimed. But 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 what it would look like on your line item if you were somebody's like, well, can I see your finance? It would come under pastoral training or pastoral development, and you're like, oh, that's something really good. That's like. We're, we're, we're sending them to seminary for maybe a special class or no, it's just, in fact, we, we, we had to always go to a one time, there was one time where we all had to fly and the time we went, I went, it was, I went to Louisville and I went to um, Fort Myers. So Fort Myers one was crazy. We go down to a mega church and we meet there and we were supposed to go off and meditate, but it was that bad kind of meditation, and then come back and just share with each other what God was showing us in our time of being silent before the Lord. And um, and then afterward, we went to a really nice cigar lounge. And after that, we went out to a very nice restaurant. Then we went over to one of the pastors, his house. And what everyone did was sit around with whiskey and cigars or cigarettes and just complained. Now, how much did you pay for all that? Oh, that was part of that $2,500, but I had to play for my plane fare and my hotel and my car rental. So $2,500 to be told, go meditate. Yeah. And then let's have some bourbon. But it was really strongly pushed by that planting, uh, that church planting uh, network. And again, people don't know and money. And so I finally had to just say, to the elders, I can't, I can't, <laughs> there yeah. is, I, before the Lord, I can't do this. This is wrong. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'd rather go to Ethiopia right. and train the pastors than go down and watch people drink bourbon. However, one guy did know his bourbon. He showed off. He could, we, 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 we actually gave him a flight. I guess that's what they're called. A flight, right? Is that where you have different? I think it's a snifter. Or something no, like that. no, no, no. I think it's a flight when you have well, like four or five like different beers. bourbons. Oh, well, this was a flight of bourbon because it's Louisville. Oh, yeah. And the guy sipped each one blind and he was able to identify the brand. I'm like, how much bourbon, dude, do you <laughs> drink? If if you're able to do that, that's not right. <laughs> Here, we've we've got you just some plain mash for you to chew on. Can you tell us from what distillery it comes from? <laughs> we actually did do a tour of uh, uh, whiskey making. Anyhow, that's a cool process. Again, all under pastoral development. Uh, how about another one? Um, uh, how much of the donations are redact re are redirected? This is in relationship to what we just talked about uh, to get even more donors. Did you both listen to the Mars Hill podcasts? Yeah, I did. I stopped on the last episode because I just couldn't do it anymore. Oh, you really should finish it out. <sighs> All right. I, I, I think it's eye-opening. Um, I found the podcast itself to be annoying too because I didn't agree with necessarily their points either. But um, uh, Mars Hill that they contracted out with all sorts of organizations that would increase their giving. But do you remember the, the controversy where Mark's book, I can't remember which one I wanted to say it was one on sex, but he wanted to get on the, Oh, the New York times. Oh, the, the marriage one. Yeah, yeah. So they actually paid a consulting firm. That's whole job is to fake it. So that, and so what they did was they 
purchased like 200,000 copies or something like that, but they used the church's money to purchase it and then use that to leverage it to force it onto the bestsellers list. But all of the money for those sales went to Mark because the way he did it was that he got the and I have no problem with a, a pastor who writes a book getting the royalties. I think that's proper. It's his work. Yeah, but you're using church money to— But but when you're yeah. using the church money to artificially inflate the numbers, and, and you ask yourself, how many of those members knew that when they're giving, that they're giving actually just to enlarge the coffers of Mark and to move that book up there? And it's no wonder why ultimately when everything started coming out, it, it just imploded. Um, but again, my question is, how, how many of the guys have ever heard of a ministry and they're going to do a, a cruise? Have you guys ever heard of that one? Yeah, I've heard of that one. I think uh, there's a, I don't know. That was X-29, right? Like, I actually, actually, a few uh, places have done it. A, a lot of your radio ministries will do it. Um, I know Grace to You has done it. Ligonier, I think, has done it too. Yeah. Yep. And it, you know, hey, we have 2,500 slots. You can get on it, uh, but it's a chance to meet and greet the name and, and rub shoulders. But it's also an extremely effective way of getting the wealthier people and then being able to get them to give even more. My question is, to what end and, and, and why? And, um, I, and people have to understand, it's not cheap to rent an entire cruise liner. And and so again, you're you're saying, well, I'm giving thirty bucks a month. That's all I can afford. But I really believe in X ministry, so I'm going to send it there, and I want the word to go out. But in fact, your money is literally being redirected into a cruise line, <laughs> so that to a cruise line that you can't afford to go to, you can't afford it. It's a fifteen hundred dollars to be on it, and you're like, I don't have that kind of money. That'd be so cool. But the people who can afford go there, they get you know, schmoozed and, and then they drop some more money. And at some point, again, I have to ask myself and, and maybe I'm wrong, I, but I have to ask myself in my mind, how is that right? Yeah. I don't know. I, and maybe it's easy because we're in a small church and we can come across like we're just grousing, but, um, I wonder. It it seems just fundamentally wrong. I mean, you touched on the person who's giving thirty bucks a month or even thirty bucks a year, right? It's like that person will never get to benefit from that. And so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be harsh in how I frame this, but it's like I think of James, right? With uh, yeah, the partiality, yeah, the thing. partiality being shown there, and maybe it's inadvertent. Maybe people are not even thinking of that kind of logical repercussion of it, but that's what it seems on. Face or at face value. And maybe somebody in a bigger organization could come back and give us a perspective. I, I would not mind that. Um, and, and I'd be happy to eat my words. Um, when you have a lot of money, even as a donor, it, it can happen where you just begin to think you deserve something because look how much I'm giving. And so I, I now deserve, um, the inside track. Um, there was a guy that went to our church for a while. He was a multimillionaire and uh, he did, I don't quite know, he did options or something like that. It's very vague to me what he did. But he talked about how uh, a mega church down in Illinois, he dropped a $100,000 check. Um, and the next day he was invited, within the next day or two, he was invited in 
to a sit down to meet the pastor personally. And, and they brought him up and they introduced him to him. The guy thanked him for his generous gift, chatted with him. And he, he was immediately brought into a, a level of intimacy with the leadership. And it had nothing to do with where he was at spiritually or, or anything else. It literally had to do with the fact that he dropped a hundred grand. And that's, that, that passage in James came to my mind at that point. Yeah. Um, how many, your thoughts on supporting local ministries versus international ministries? What do you mean versus? As, well, a small church, you, let's yeah. say you have $5,000 you, you, you feel you want to mm-hmm. put towards things. Uh, you can drop it all on World Vision, Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse, I think they do some good stuff, but so I'm not dogging on, but you could drop it there or you could drop it on the local food pantry where your people are volunteering. Gotcha. Uh, it, I mean, it would depend on the ministry. Um, I like local because this is where God has placed us and your people can get involved and yeah. develop real true relationships with people and actually have an ability to bring the gospel. Uh, having said that, the church is absolutely mandated to bring the gospel to all nations. And I do believe that's a local church issue, not something that merely should be exported to some other parachurch thing. Um, but I mean, it depends on the ministry. The way we've done missions, at least as recently, is we just go do it yeah, personally. Because uh, we know what's being taught and and we're careful with money, so we know where every penny is going. Um, versus, if you just put, you know, give it to some ministry that does international missions, whatever that means, you don't you don't actually know where your dollars are going and what's happening. You you only get what's reported back to you. Yes. And I'm the kind where I want to know, um, so I like to be the one to go or. Um, you know, and we even have it where it's like, hey, if one of our elders wants to go, let's go. I don't know how many of them want to go to Africa, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm big on that. It's like, yeah, you, you should go. And well, we'll even have it if a per- like if we have the money, um, a person in the church who's really interested and wants to invest in the, it's like, all right, let's go, and you can see. Yeah, and I guess that's my point. In it is you're right. It always. There's always exceptions and everything else. I just personally tend that if I were a member of a church and I wanted to support a ministry, I would tend to want to support one local um, that we where you can get your hands dirty because it's very easy to write a check. But, but it's a lot more personal when you're actually writing a check and you're involving yourself there in your community. You're making that impact. Part of our missional idea is instead of – Missio Day Fellowship starting a food pantry. We don't need one of those. We have plenty. If you really want to, why don't you go volunteer for one that exists yes. and then actually engage the people helping that ministry who probably don't know Christ as well as the people coming in, and now you can engage them for the gospel. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, that's exactly what we teach in our new members class, right? Exactly. Let's yeah. not reinvent something that's already being done. Just go join the work. And you'll quickly, if you're in there volunteering, you'll quickly see whether it's a faithful ministry, right? It's right. like, okay, these guys are, this is a joke, we're done, you know? Yeah, and I encourage people to do that because the tendency in a more affluent culture is the fact that you have money, it's easy to just write a check and say, I'm doing work, I'm doing a good work. Uh, whereas I encourage people, yeah, write the check, that's a good thing, but then 
go and get your hands dirty as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, we did that with a guy who was tra- uh, training men at a theological seminary in Cameroon. And then we found out through him, and I went out there to teach at the seminary as well, that there were some families where, like, there's that one guy who literally was choosing to eat or go to seminary. And so he was choosing not to eat. <laughs> well, that didn't work. <laughs> and 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 the guy let us know about it. And I asked him just, so how much would it cost for him to pay for a seminary in American dollars for a semester? He said, about 250 bucks. <laughs> And when I heard that, I'm like, we'll just give you it. <laughs> and we, we, we will support him because he was a faithful, the student was a faithful guy. He just was poor, as only Africa can have poor. And, um, and we ended up supporting many families, but it was directly through this man. And he only chose faithful students who were, who were in genuine need. So we had again, confidence that there was no administrative fees. There was no infrastructure. It just went through him and he made certain it got dispersed and then he would give us an account. And then I was regularly going over there. And so I would then be able to meet these families. And it was actually, I remember that family specifically, I, I went through the village and found their little uh, home and uh, I just paid him a surprise visit. And being African, they welcomed me in and, and sat me in the one, the best chair, which was really uncomfortable. But I remember that they came and each child came and greeted me with the greatest of deference and thanksgiving because we actually started supporting all of his children to go to the local private school too mm-hmm. because we found that. And so it cost us an extra hundred, I think, bucks a month. So it was like 350 And um and I'll never forget it because he, he wanted to show his appreciation. So him and his family gave me an African tusk, uh, elephant's tusk. And and that was something they had had in, uh, I think his father had it. And it was just something he wanted. It, it's the yeah. only thing they had of value. I gave it back to him. Like, I legally, I don't think I can even own this. <laughs> And that's when you went to jail. <laughs> yeah, so I gave it back to him, and 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 it was it took a lot of convincing him keep it. We we give this freely. We're happy. We're yeah. not looking for uh, something back. We you just be faithful with your studies, and then go out and, and pastor. Well, you know, I, I I think there's a lot of of value in that. Um, if you actually want to get a sense of how much infrastructure might be involved in some of these big ones, just do a Google search for like World Vision headquarters and they have them throughout the world. And you can actually then use Google Maps and look at the size of that building and, and or in World Visions since it's buildings. They're massive. They're huge. And, and, and it doesn't take a lot of thinking to figure out how much does it cost just to keep the lights on keep them heated, everything else. All of that is being poured, but none of it is actually going to what they say is their core work. I'm not saying that necessarily you say no to that, but the local ministry is usually the infrastructure is much smaller, and so your money is having a greater impact on an actual community that you can get involved in. Um, Now, along with that then, quick, your thoughts on the so-called discernment bloggers and negative journalists who also then have a need to feed the beast. Isn't this course in the chaos? Yeah, I mean, uh, you guys yeah. can give to Patreon and <laughs> PayPal and uh, I think Venmo. 
Or I'm you kidding. can buy we, a mug. We literally do not take money. <laughs> so. By the way, we are on our last row of mugs. We're right. almost done. I don't know. So people, do you want to buy a mug? You better do it quick. And if you don't, but you'd love to have something connected, tell us. We don't, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we make no money off this. Um, I think I, we had enough that got broken that we're going to yeah. be lucky if we pay for the mugs. Like I said, I think we're in the red here. Yeah, most likely. Um, but, you know, the, our favorite person we like to uh, just kind of chew on is Julie Royce, right? Um, a lot of times those investigative journalists, so to speak, they break a big story. And it's sometimes a good thing. It's, it's good that they are able to reveal what's going on. But once that happens, they get this huge spike, and now they're bringing in more money, and now let's keep that going. And so now they have to feed that. And so now they're, they become a gossip monger rather than unve- un- unveiling the CD side of the Christian ministries. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so now they just, with no real investigation, anyone who wants to call them or send them an email and say, hey, I, I quit this ministry and, and they're this and they're this. And then next thing you know, it's up on the Royce Report with the request of, hey, if you want to keep this kind of hard-hitting investigative journalist going yeah. on, uh, press this button and donate now. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to watch her too because someone will take issue with her on, you know, Facebook or wherever she is, and literally call her that. This is just gossip mongering, if not slander, because you don't know all the facts. And she's like, it's not gossip mongering. It's literally my job as an investigative journalist. It's like, who hired you? You went out and you asked for donations and people gave their money, but no one's hired you to do this. And, but in their mind, they've somehow justified that this is, this is good gospel work. Yeah. I don't even know where she, what church she calls home anymore. Um, but we've seen this happen time and time and time again. Again, um, there are overt statements in the scripture about gossip, slander, uh, spreading strife, um, and those seem to go away. All for the fact that now we can hear uh, about the latest thing that somebody's bugged. Um, we're we're going to do something on, it's, you're starting to read the book too, hashtag church two, and you're already annoyed and you've <laughs> only read the introduction, right? And yeah, yeah I, I, I was, I, th- I think when I told you about the book, I, my last comment to you is it's going to make your blood boil. Um, it's just a terrible book, but it's, that's a riff off of the Me Too movement. Yeah. And, um, and again, it's this idea that you're guilty until you can prove you're innocent, which is impossible. And I think people, again, you start feeding that beast and you don't realize what you're actually participating in. But a lot of people who support that kind of stuff, what they're actually doing is participating in a destructive work um, with no pursuit of actual truth. It only is, let's go hit, the, let's go spread innuendo with no proof and let's let a, an angry person um, air their grievance, even though we don't even know if those grievances are actual. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know how I can say this without getting in trouble, but um, with the Me Too movement, I, I just shook my head at all of the people who were talking about, I can't even remember who the guy is anymore. Um, he was a wealthy producer. 
and all the women that w- went through and quote unquote had so to do Weinstein? the Weinstein Weinstein Harvey I think Weinstein Harvey Weinstein you're right and and they they had to do this quote unquote the casting couch and that and give sexual favors and then he would make certain that they got a part and the woman was being painted as a victim well first of all we have nothing to do with a Harvey Weinstein that that that's a vile filthy man in every way and he should be denounced but if you think that you're a victim because you go and offer your body so that you can now get a, a high paying acting job you're not a victim what i, I was just going to say that that's just called prostitution <laughs> Biblically speaking, yes. <laughs> Biblically speaking, yes. But but and that's what's happening. But then afterward, five, ten years later, then they're they're look, I'm a victim and I need to be heard. And it's like you have profited off of this yourself. And now only because you can make money in a different way by marketing your victimhood, which is a new market, um, you're you're doing it. So all of that to say is I think it's worth when we talk about these parachurch organizations, remember that um, accountability is is key. And and before you start pouring large amounts of your money, uh, where you re- redirect from your church to one of these parachurch organizations, ask yourself how much accountability actually is there. But I would even say you can do the same thing at your local church. If, if a member, not just some guy who wanders in, uh, but if a member asks you, Matt, uh, where's your money? Where's the money going? What would happen? I'm. I don't know. I've never. But we have an to... open book policy. I How mean, open? I, I even tell that at um, our new members class that. How open though? As open as they get. I mean, I literally show them the sheets. Yeah. I mean, that's our policy. I have nothing too. to hide. Um, yeah. They. Yeah. <laughs> what? What? When I work here, at, read a spreadsheet. I'd, yeah. Yeah. Have fun. Uh, I remember at Grace Community Church when that administrator was working, I don't know what their policy is today, but it was the same way. Uh, if, a, if somebody had a complaint and they wanted to know where's the money going, at the budget that they had was done on those great big green and white lined papers that were like 16 inches wide off a dot matrix thing, but it was like two and a half, three inches thick, the budget, because it was a major ministry. But he, he, it's like, make an appointment, we'll sit down, I'll show you. He had no fear because he was such a man of integrity. Uh, his name was Rufus and just a good man. And he was such a high integrity. He had nothing. And it was so wonderful. The church had nothing to hide. It's like, yeah, we bring in a large amount of money, but we can show you where every single penny goes if you really want to. And a few people would take advantage of that, and then they were kind of sorry they did <laughs> because he literally would take them into the weeds and like, there they are. Yeah, that's how much we buy in pencils. Yep. Uh, no, here's here's how we negotiated that contract for that copier, um, and and this is what we pay, and oh, here's how much this and that, and it. But that's our policy at at Missio as well. Um, they want to know how much I make. It's it's in the budget. 
It, right. It's right there. You don't have to wonder. There's no slush funds, nothing. Um, I think that a person who's giving, if they're giving to an anonymous source, uh, an, a, an, a, a, rather an organization that they really have no knowledge of what's going on there, I think they're probably going to find in the long run they've wasted money uh, when they could divert to the local church. And then I would argue that the local church needs to be a place that's faithful, absolutely faithful. So don't do a Mars Hill, right? Yeah. Um, where you hide everything and and you start playing the shell game. Um, so anyhow, that those are just some thoughts I thought I would expand on. I hope that this somehow is helpful to the people. We're not here to attack a ministry or. Yeah, I would also let me throw in there. If you do give money to a parachurch out of the purity of your heart, it, I mean, there's only. I mean, it's not like you can sit there and police it either. No, you yeah. can't. Um, just give in faith. Ask as many questions as you can. But don't lose sleep because, wow, if, if they weren't faithful with my money, somehow I've lost reward in heaven. No, uh, that's a very good point. Yes. Expand on that because I, I didn't think about that. But well, you, I mean, you, you only can give based on your knowledge, right. right? And what you're being told. And and a lot there are a lot of good parachurch ministries out there that, that are doing things, you know, that maybe a small local church can't. And maybe it's your heart to serve that specific need. Go find some good ones. And I'll even say if there's people at, a, at my church that have a specific um, ministry on their heart, I'm happy to sit down with them and talk through it. And we'll figure out questions to go and ask those people if you're wanting to give your money there. Um, but yeah, it, but you're only going to have so much knowledge. And so you give out of good intent and the Lord, I think, will honor it. In fact, I think it it would be good for pastors when you do find a good ministry that you push it. Yeah. Say, look, if this is something that you'd love to support, we we can recommend this a wholeheartedly. We and that's where I will also say I think good leadership and pastors come into play. Is if you're trying to find any and every parachurch that you can give to, and you, your pastors and your elders aren't pushing it or um, you know, recommending it you might slow down and bring it to them and say, hey, do you think this is a good thing? Uh, okay, I'll even do a slight twist on that. Um, you'll know which what I'm talking about. Um, a few years, uh, several years ago, a guy uh, connected to our church wanted to go into overseas missions. And we counseled him, before you do, go get a seminary degree, right? Just, you don't have enough knowledge to be able to long-term train up and do the kind of work you're wanting to do. We think the work is great. We just don't think you're ready yet. If you want us to support you, what we will do is we will actually help you go to seminary, and in three to four years, you'll be done, and then go out, and we will wholeheartedly support you in what you're trying to do. He chose not to, um, and and that was his freedom. I mean, he had that, but, uh, but my conversation was literally, if you choose not to understand that we won't, the church... We, we just don't support that, um, and so we won't have anything to do with it. What was interesting was then many members, because they knew the person, on their own chose to support them, and, and they didn't stop and ask, why is my own church not supporting that? And, and I had a few of them say, why are you not supporting it? I told them why. I was very honest. It was not even disparaging. Just here's what we asked, and they don't want to, and we in our conscience cannot use the church's money to fund that, and that they chose to do it anyhow. And some of them later had regret. 
uh, because they saw how it really worked itself out. So that again, I guess you're, it, it would be a different episode, but it would be behind a lot of this also comes with poor leadership at the church level that they don't help their people even know what to do with their money. There are generous people. They want to help. They want to give. They want to support. And they're left to their own devices because they get no direction, no help from from their pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think all of us could look at anyone who came to us and said, hey, I'm thinking about this. I don't know much about them. Do you know? And we might say, I don't know anything about them. Here's the things I would contact them and say, I'm interested in beginning to support you, but I have a series of questions I'd like to ask you, and if you could please get back to me on them. Um, a solid organization is going to get back. Now, you're right. You can't expect micromanaging. I mean, at some point, they're going to say, dude, you're only giving us 30 a month. We're not going to have weekly phone calls, <laughs> right? I mean, I know. I, I'm just like, like, you can't do that. But, but I would never begrudge a person. If somebody wanted... We literally aren't set up for this, people. But if somebody wanted to say, hey, I'd like to start putting 300 bucks a month into Faith and Fable. I'd like, just like to help it out, get your equipment better, blah, blah, blah. But I have questions. We would just talk. Um, we would be very, very open and willing to do it. And, and a good organization will not be shy from that. But what you have to learn is to ask yourself, when they answer the questions, did they actually say anything? Um, or did they use very broad words like, well, uh, for you to go on this missions trip, we were talking about that one, um, you want to go to Serbia, it's going to cost you $3,500 to go. And you then say, well, where's that all going? Well, plane fare, uh, food, and housing. And you're like, okay, and transportation. Okay. And so you're like, all right, it's easy to assume that costs 3500 bucks, right? But then you find out if you actually start asking questions that it, it only costs about a thousand of that to get you over there, food, feed you and house you. So now where's the other 2,500 going? Right. Right. Again, it might not be bad things, but why aren't they telling you? And so ask the questions, ask good questions. And if, they, if they're forthright, you will find that it's probably an organization that you can give with with a good conscience mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah yeah anything else you guys want to add not nope. that i can think of you have to get your kids anyhow and take them home yeah. all right so thank you for listening i hope it uh has helped if if this actually ends up raising new questions don't be afraid to ask um we're starting to get better at responding to your questions now that we're discovering where you're asking your questions for some of you if you have asked a question um, and you thought we forgot about you, go check where you put your question because I've got a few people I've responded to and they've not, it does not show that they have actually seen my response. So make sure you do that. But as always, we ask you to like and share uh, this with others. It always helps us out a lot. Uh, you can also share it on Facebook and Instagram. And as we're now telling everyone, we're no longer on Twitter, so don't bother. And tell a friend. Tell a friend.